Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Matt Sankowitz, an associate professor and chair of the Boston College Communication Department. He's the co-author, along with Nick Marks, of That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, which we're going to be talking about today. Matt Sankowitz, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. You know, I thought we'd start with something really basic. When I think about comedy and what comedy is, I, I often think about that, that old Mel Brooks line, right? The tragedy is where I, when I cut my finger, comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. Um, I don't know if we want to go with that definition of comedy, but I thought we'd start there. What, what is comedy or how you're looking at it and sort of how political comedy fits into that sort of wide, wider universe of comedy? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And obviously, uh, you know, the countless pages, books, uh, theses have been written uh, yeah. trying to define comedy, kind of get it into a box. And I mean, that, that tells you one thing, right? It does not want to be put into a box. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, as we approach it in our book, it's uh, there's sort of two uh, angles that we're coming at. Uh, and uh, the first one's got not that much to do with comedy itself at all. Uh, that is as a product for sale, right? In some ways, we're defining comedy in this book. Uh, as things that are sold as comedies, right? That are, uh, you know, put forth by personalities or creators who list themselves as comedians, who say they're doing comedy, who associate with other people who say they're doing comedy. Uh, sort of an industrial definition, I think, is probably the the first way that we tend to approach things in the book, uh, and and looking at how you know people of different political persuasions kind of group together uh, in order to sell something they call comedy. Uh, then, of course, there is the theoretical side. Right. What what are the sort of mechanics of comedy? What are the ways in which things are, uh, you know, made funny and some conceptual psychological level? Um, you know, I mean, I'm pretty multi methodological uh, when I think of it uh, in those terms. Uh, I'm open to, um, for example, something that you might you might be familiar with, maybe not. Something called benign violation theory: mm -hmm. uh, the idea that comedy comes from breaking rules, but in a way that doesn't break them, a way that that really turns us off. Um, but there's Freudian ideas, right? The idea that comedy is releasing uh, these things we have pent up in us that, that we need to release in ways that, that sort of society doesn't let us. You don't have to be a pure Freudian to see something uh, about, you know, sort of taboo and comedy and the way things come out. Uh, there are notions of superiority, right? The idea that comedy is, is when you laugh at somebody, when you look down at somebody, when you feel better. Uh, that's kind of the Mel Brooks definition that you put forth. Uh, and then there's just sort of logical things, right? There are ways in which... Uh, uh, nonsense made somehow sensical is comedy. And, uh, you know, I would argue that uh, all of those can be used, right? There's ways to understand comedy through all those different lenses. Uh, but where we pull them together is, is looking at a group of people who are selling products. And that could be literal, but more often that means sort of getting you to listen to something that will then sell to an advertiser uh, by listing it as comedy, understanding it as comedy, selling it as comedy, uh, and then, um, you know, sort of hashing their politics to that comedy. And, you know, in, in terms of political comedy, at least my sense of things is that it's very much, may, maybe not entirely owned, but there's certainly a predominance of left of center political comedy. And that's actually been the case for a while now. And I'm wondering if, well, first off, if you would agree with that. And if you do, why you think that might be so? Yeah, no, I 100% I do agree with that. But only if we start with that that industrial commercial thing that I, I was right. talking about. So if you look at American comedy, and it, it probably applies in hey and, and other places, it's there's too much variability to say, but certainly in the US, uh, there's no question that if we look from yeah, the 1960s, 1970s to fairly recently, the uh, majority major comedy institutions in the United States have been sort of central center left, 
Uh, you, you, early SNL is sort of countercultural in a way that's identifying itself with the center left. Oh, the Smothers Brothers. I mean, go very far back and sort of see that. And, and it's certainly uh, that, that tracking works more or less. The few blips, I would argue, in the 80s, maybe, uh, up until, you know, the early 2000s and the heyday of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report. Um, so I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, my first explanation for that is industrial. It has to do with the way that the TV and the media industry work uh, and a little bit on sort of psychology and demographics. Uh, the way I'd put it is, is, is this, um, you know, for a long time, most American media was aimed at really big audiences, you know, in the, the 60s, 70s sort of major, you know, trying to get a third of the American audience, right? If you're on TV, right? It's three networks. Um, there's no video games, there's no internet to compete with, there's radio, there's other things, but really you're looking for these massive, big chunks of audiences. And that mindset sort of pertains uh, up until the early 2000s, where the audience aims that, that media is going for get smaller, but they're still pretty big. And the argument that I would make that if you're making comedy, if you're trying to sell comedy and you've got sort of a blunt instrument, this, this thing that's sort of be aimed at, at a lot of people, the best place to aim that historically has been at the center left. Right, why is that? Uh, there tends to be some correlation with youth and a certain kind of liberalism. I mean, you know, the Reagan years challenged that. There's been moments which that, that's been a little bit uh, less clear. But as a rule, uh, that's a good place. Uh, people who are into uh, ironic comedy and political comedy, you know, tend to, uh, uh, on the whole, if you have to sort of like rate them out, you're going to find a few, uh, a bigger chunk of people towards the left side of it. You're going to find higher education rates. Uh, on the left side of things, uh, at least during certain periods of time, or at least higher engagement with certain kinds of products. Uh, and so it makes sense throughout American history that if you're going to make a product aim for a large comedy audience, you aim it at the center left. And I think that has been largely what's happened. Um, you know, that's been the, the best way to monetize and, and make good on your political comedy. Find a group of people who are interested that advertisers are super interested in getting at and pointing it towards them. What we argue in the book is that, well, that situation is no longer the case. It's no longer true that institutions and media are aiming for large groups and they have to sort of pick a big kind of chunk to kind of aim at. Instead, it can be much more, much more micro-targeted. And when things get more micro-targeted, that political bias, I think, gets revealed to be more of a kind of commercial bias than something about the nature of comedy. Right. Uh, you know, I, I know that a lot of folks on the left, when they think about right-wing comedy, not that they necessarily do a whole lot, but I think they would say, well, it doesn't even make sense, right? And that gets, I think, into the title of your book, That's Not Funny. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is, the, uh, that is the core that we're getting at in this book. It's that there is an assumption, uh, we call it sort of a psychological complex. There's something about people on the left, and I, I'm, we're including ourselves in, in this group, as we're trying to sort of work through these ideas, where you want to really deeply associate political comedy with the left. Part of that has to do with the history I just talked about, where, um, you know, and it, might, it may well be that there's a certain uh, uh, sense, that there is a way, it's hard to, you know, a sort of a psychological notion that there, there might be uh, a certain connection between certain kinds of liberalness and certain kinds of comedy. Uh, but the history that we've just talked about makes that look much stronger than the reality is, right? It sort of takes something that's sort of a minor, uh, uh, sort of, maybe not minor, but, a, but a, a, a motivation for people to make comedy towards the left and kind of makes it look like that's the only place comedy should be just because the way that's how media work. Uh, there's that. Uh, there is then, I would argue, a really important formative moment in the early 2000s, first decade of millennium, uh, where you had the, the incredible sort of popular and academic attention paid to the impact of liberal satirists. So, namely talking about John Stewart, Stephen sure. Colbert, but also people like Samantha Bee. Um, the, the list is quite long, actually, of, of sort of people on the clear left side of the American political aisle who became very famous for being impactful in the world of politics. John Stewart is the most sort of famous and clear example of this. Uh, if you think of the early 2000s, uh, who are the leaders of the Democratic Party sort of in the cultural sense? Right. I mean, is it John Kerry? Is it? Howard Dean, or is it John Stewart yeah. and Stephen Colbert? Yeah. And the answer is, it's, it's John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, right? They're the ones holding rallies that are bringing out tons of excited people ready to uh, engage. It's, it's, not, it's not John Kerry. It's not John Edwards, right? Um, so there's this moment where you have comedians sort of take that on. There's the Sarah Palin moment, which is part of this story, 
right? Where Tina Fey uh, basically just does a one-to-one -one <laughs> yeah. performance of of Sarah Palin. It seemed it's seen as very uh, effective, and it, you know, the, the very hard to do sort of empirical. What did it matter in the votes? But it, it certainly shaped how we understood Sarah Palin in a really significant way. This this happens in the early two thousands. Um, it's still a time where the media industries are aiming at that center left block when it comes to comedy. Uh, and there's so much success over there, it becomes really formative uh, in this moment uh, in American history, which I think is still looming rather large in our psychologies. And at the same time, there are attempts uh, on the right, namely Fox News, to do comedy in that moment. Uh, they produced the show called The Half Hour News Hour, uh, which was a very sort of short lived thing in 2007. Uh, it was supposed to be a right wing daily show. It did not work. Uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they, they ran it on Fox and had to put a, a disclaimer at the beginning saying, like, this is now going to be comedy. Right. Right. Because the audience sort of wasn't looking for it. That's not a great way to get people <laughs> into a comedic sort of mindset. Uh, and it shows that your audience maybe isn't ready for it. And so in that first decade of, of this millennium, you know, the, the previous history uh, plus the sort of real politics really did give the, the case, make the case. That liberals do irony, liberals do comedy, liberals uh, can make jokes, and the right can't. And what we argue in the book is that, well, that was a specific set of circumstances. A certain president, certain media industry, certain tremendous talents like Bear and, and Stewart and Tina Fey, uh, and sort of this perfect storm came together to make you think that there is a necessary connection. Uh, what we argue in the book is that if you look more recently, uh, that, that connection is far less clear if you actually sort of look at the world of comedy broadly, not just looking at the old institutions. Uh, and that uh, there's real resistance uh, still for people on the left to acknowledge that the right does comedy, that they, that they are intending to make people laugh in order to excite them politically. Uh, and often what, what happens is somebody will find a comedian on the left and then explain, I mean, on the right, uh, find a comedian on the right and say how they're not really a comedian. Or, you know, look at their jokes and say, well, they're not really jokes if you break them down in some technical sense. Or they'll try to caveat and sort of uh, define away, sort of no true Scotsman away, uh, a right-wing comedian. And that's all fine and good, I guess, if you're, I don't know, in a debate club or something. But as we show in the book, there's money being made in audiences who are really interested in people who identify on the right and who are trying to make them laugh. Right. Well, you know, I think a lot of people would, would say maybe not denying that it's comedy. But saying that uh, people, there's something wrong with laughing at these things because there is, right, a certain amount of right wing comedy that is based in, well, racism, sexism, homophobia, and people are laughing at that. And, and I think part of the, the distasteful reaction on the left is, is that if you think that's funny, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, no, for sure. And we actually, in the very beginning of the book, kind of go through different ways in which people say that's not funny. Right. Right. Uh, uh, sometimes it's just uh, sometimes it's just a, a taste preference. Right. I don't think that's funny. Right. Uh, but sometimes it's a moral judgment. You might even think it's funny, but you think it is immoral to think it is. Funny. Right. Uh, this is that Freudian thing. Right. Where sometimes what comedy does it reaches down into parts of you you don't want to admit are there um, sometimes or sometimes something's just it's just immoral. It's just unethical. And the fact that other people are laughing, that's fine. But you don't want to call it comedy. That's that is possible. Uh, and. And one thing that's really clear in the book, we're, we're not trying to tell you that anything in particular. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the couple of characters in the book who I do think are really talented comedians. Uh, but there are some things in there which are just appalling, right? Um, that we write about in the book, uh, particularly on the far, far right and uh, sort of the fascist world. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and uh, there's an argument to be made. Say, oh, let's not call it that because uh, it gives it sort of a... a Comedy has a positive connotation to me, and I don't want to put anything with a positive connotation on something that is so morally reprehensible. And I, I hear that argument. Um, my problem with it is, well, the people who are it is appealing to are going there because it's funny. So at the very least, or they find it funny, uh, even if you find that immoral. I think uh, it's one thing if you understand you're saying this is a taste and sort of moral uh, judgment that you're making. Uh, but if you want to thereby kind of put it in some extra category, that's not how the consumers of it are thinking of it. They are thinking of it as their comedy. Uh, I think it can get really into some mistaken ideas about what motivates people. So there's distinction then between that's not funny, full stop, and that's not funny to me, basically. 
Yeah, and I think that's crucial to think about politics. I mean, there's a there's this real desire with comedy to kind of own it for your side to say that that this is what we are. We are the funny ones, and they are the unfunny ones. And the right does that now constantly. There are figures on the right who want to spend all their time telling you about oh how now it's reversed from the old uh, cliche, and now left wingers are the prudes. Left wingers are the uh, uh, fundamentally unfunny people. And okay, fine. This is just sort of a cudgel. This is just something to uh, you know argue about. Um, whatever i mean that's that's uh, but it, the the idea that uh, uh the that humor has this sort of either ethical or sort of uh inherent orientation towards one place or another i think it's a mistake and i think you end up really uh mistaking one thing for another right mistaking people who are out there uh looking for maybe a, a space in which they don't feel constrained and uh, uh and uh, you know they're going there for reasons that aren't the ugly parts necessarily but they, 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 the use of humor on one side or the other invites them in anyway. It can get complicated. We can get into more depth, but you know, I think it's important to distinguish your own sort of ideas of comedy and the way in which it's used to attract other people who might have different ideas. Well, you, you know, you, you mentioned something I wanted to, to touch on in that this idea that the right is saying that or, there are figures on the right who are saying we're actually the funny ones now, and and it seems to me when I think about comedy more generally it there's a part of it at least that is very uh iconoclastic right challenging traditional beliefs and yeah and so i mean now uh, it seems to me that a lot what a lot of these conservative uh figures are arguing is that well if you take a look at what the the man is or the orthodoxy is it's a liberal orthodoxy now that the left has, well, maybe not won the culture wars, but the left is way ahead. And so therefore, if you want to be iconoclastic and edgy, you can't do that on the left anymore. And you have to do that on the right. I mean, I think of like Dave, Dave Chappelle, at least the modern version of Dave Chappelle or Bill Burr, figures like that. It seems to me that's a big part of what they do, right? Oh, it is for sure. I mean, and there's, you know, there, uh, I think there's an extent to which that, that more or less right as analysis. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a bit overstated. Uh, you know, the first move with that is to define what the, what the hegemony is, right? What the dominant sure. force is. And to cherry pick out, um, you know, uh, you know, cancel culture kind of stuff. The thing that they really want to talk about on the right in order to establish themselves as the one, ones who can be funny and break boundaries and the left who can't. Um, but you know, you, you, there's much to be asked and talked about the extent to which uh, they're focusing on things that are, are uh, real consistent uh, impacts on people's lives versus very popular tweets or, yeah. or whatever. Right. Uh, there's an extent to which that the first move is you got to define, you define the, the, the man in a way that's convenient to you. Yeah. Um, and that's actually probably where I think the rights winning more on this than anywhere else is winning that, that sort of a, emphasizing the kinds of power that the left uh, maybe does have versus uh, other sorts of power, like, I don't know, pass legislation or things sure. like this that you yeah. might think are also important, uh, as important as, as good tweets uh, and, 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 uh, you know, uh, or, or getting people, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, to think about which words they use to describe different people or whatever. Anyway, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that, that's part of it. Like the right has definitely, they're, they're miles ahead on that. Sort of, uh, they've positioned the the left, you know. Uh, and again, both these right and left terms are super amorphous, uh, but in discourse, the way we talk, they're they're important. Uh, so they, the the right has certainly established that uh, as being something that the left is. The left is the man. One place that they've done that fairly successfully and with a little bit more persuasion than others is in the world of of sort of media and culture. Um, you know, there's characters out there. I'm meaning by the name of Ryan Long, who spends uh, a lot of his time uh, when he's not trying to make jokes explaining why he's not allowed to make jokes yeah. uh, on the left. Uh, that's like a whole sort of business. Right. And so um, that's part of it. I mean, there, there's some extent, I think this is right. That I think from, it is correct uh, that from uh, sort of, if you're a liberal who's sort of strategizing the future, uh, making it not so easy to paint yourself as a prude, as a person who's about restrictions as opposed to freedoms, whether or not it's the reality is a separate question, but you don't want to be viewed that way. Um, the extent to which the left has been successfully painted as that restrictive voice is a way that gives advantage to people who want to create comedy through, through, you know, violating those taboos. Um, complicated. 
Well, you know, you talk about violating taboos and breaking barriers, and I want to get into that a little bit more because there are a number of ways to do that. And, and there's a there's kind of this distinction that's sometimes made in comedy, the, the difference between punching up and punching down, where punching up, you're taking shots at you know people or groups or the man who are in positions of power, and then punching down kind of taking shots at people who are, uh, who have been, you know, historically marginalized and oppressed and, and punching down is generally seen as I would say, certainly on the left, not okay. And I was wondering how you see this whole notion of punching up and punching down, which you talk about a little bit in the book and how this relates to right and left wing comedy. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is um, necessary to engage with, but very slippery, partially because we, we, what, what, what we, sort of just discussed about definition. Sure. Right. Who dis, who, who, who defines up and down? So, I mean, as a general rule, right, I think m- many, many people, most people at least who identify themselves as liberal would say, yeah, I mean, uh, any sort of like aggressive rhetoric and comedy is often aggressive. Like can't seem, I think, contradictory, but it's not. I mean, that's it. There's aggression in, in much of comedy uh, ought to be aimed at people who uh, are empowered and perhaps abusing power. Now, that seems sort of intuitive. A question then comes about defining what is power. Uh, and, the, and I think the simplest example I could give for this, like what's punching up, what's punching down. Uh, if uh, if uh, one of the characters who in the book or whatever uh, puts a, a, a tweet out about Joe Biden, uh, but that tweet is really uh, sort of uh, this kind of, uh, you know, thing mocking his age and his mental capacities in ways that, that you know, uh, people who are supporters of Biden would see as unfair and biased and, and bigoted. Right. So let's look at that tweet. Right. You know, making fun of Biden's mental capacities in a way that, that perhaps is exaggerated and not not fair in some objective sense. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're on the left, that's punching down. Like, look, you are you're because you're you think of it as sort of a category. Right. Right. This is a joke aimed at older people, uh, a joke aimed at, at uh, making fun of the disabled, of which, you know, you think that the president is not. He just slipped up in a word or whatever. But you're you, this joke is really punching at any uh, sort of person with a mental problem or whatever. This joke is punching down clearly, right? And then the person on the right says, what are you talking about? That's the president. There's nobody who is more up, right? There's nobody higher to swing at. And that is where I think a lot of the trying to claim the punching up, punching down thing happens in this in this debate. Um, you know, particularly, you know, the right. I mean, let's take a, you know, nobody makes a joke that you perceive as racist towards the vice president, right? That'll happen. Right. And you'll say that's punching down at a, at a minority group of people who have been oppressed in this country. And you're just making fun of, uh, you know, stereotypes based on skin color and so on and so forth. First on the on the right says, no, we're punching up at the vice president. Right. And I think those of us who sort of view that from the liberal perspective say, oh, that's a cover right They're They're sort of lying about that. But the definition becomes really tricky. Uh, I, I think we can feel fine about making our moral judgment on that. Right. But I don't think we can think we're going to persuade people who disagree when you get into those kinds of back and forth. And, you know, that's what the punching up, punching down definition is something that we we engage with because people talk about it. Uh, but, you know, it's got that, you know, it's got a direction in it, which means it's relative. And even if we don't want to say it's, you know, we want to say that our moral perspective is the one that you should take. That's fine. Uh, it's very hard to persuade across across spaces with. I definitely agree. There's a lot of gray area and those examples are great, but there's also, I think, some pretty clear instances of Mm, punch. And and you get into this when you talk about what you call. Sure. Sometimes it's not gray. Yeah. 100%. And there's this whole segment of the book where you talk about the basement of right wing comedy. And yeah, yeah, where it's not gray. I got to say, there was some stuff there that I I read that was really just, I kind of, it really kind of turned my stomach. And there's some stuff out there. I don't know that people are aware of it, but it's, it's some pretty rough stuff, isn't it? Yeah, no. And, and I mean, and this again, you know, when I was given the examples of those, you know, about Biden and Harris, I'm not saying, yeah, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use another one that's even worse here, I think. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, but uh, so, you know, clear, like, I think if you're making a racist tweet at the vice president, I think if, if, if we're going to use punching up, punching down, punching down is the way to go. But they've got their cover. Right. Yeah. They've got their their cover for their group. So you're talking about our basement here. We, we make an argument in the book that there's a wide range of comedy on the right. Uh, I would say ranging from stuff that uh, I personally actually think is quite clever and funny uh, to things that are somewhere in the middle where I disagree with it politically. And I think it's probably not morally right, but I can see how people disagree 
to the edges where it's just the you know beyond the pale. And so yeah, our basement we just described. So we sort of talk about right wing comedy as a complex, kind of like a shopping mall, right? Where like Fox News's Greg Gutfeld is like the target, sort of the big box store with the mm-hmm. largest audience and kind of provides to the most people. And there's specialty places. We've got a uh, you know the 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 bar uh, the bar district with uh, Joe Rogan and Legion of Skanks and people like that. And then somewhere down in the subterranean where you can get the the hard illegal stuff would be things like. Um, uh, so a character by the name of Nick Fuentes, who's a sort of a uh, YouTuber, social media guy, kind of gets kicked off and back on. That's actually probably part of his appeal, right? Is that like he's he's like right on the border and he is uh, in, in uh, over the top uh, racist, uh, sort of he'll call it anti-immigrant, but it's it's pretty pure racism. Uh, he will do in, in elongated, uh, quote unquote, ironic Holocaust denial jokes. And they are structured as jokes. Um, they are structured as jokes. They're, stru- they're structured through irony in a way that if you want to think, you're just sort of laughing at something about the way in which this topic is, he- is held too sacrosanct. You could do that. Uh, the interpretations that I and I think most people who I'm willing to listen to uh, give to it is that, no, this is just sort of like trying to make a joke to, to you know, make Holocaust denial cool. Uh, that's out there. Uh, call that anything but punching down. I mean, uh, would seem insane. However, if you ask him and his his fans, he'd say like, no, he's he's like going at the things that nobody else lets you talk about, right? Like that the, the the man, as you put it, right, doesn't let you uh, you know talk about immigration in a ways that uh, reflect our views that that the uh, you know we think need to be or god forbid but or that you know the way that they don't let us challenge the the you know most documented events in human history right the holocaust or one of the most uh and then after him there's the, the people who are even sort of more they're they're a little they're still trying to be funny but they're less ironic there's there's something called the daily Shoah, which is about the, the pretty rough words to get out of your mouth the show being the hebrew term for the holocaust the daily show being the pun uh and they are just they're just nazis right uh and they are um they are doing everything that all of every everybody sort of has a moral place to stand on would say is punching down uh you know they say they're punching up an international jury and that's not something we should take seriously but we should understand that that is how they frame it like virtually nobody here says they're punching down yeah um i mean that's disgusting obviously it was pretty disgusting and even the sort of like twitter examples i gave perhaps i gave them vaguely so maybe Mm -hmm. not um you know, and that's, I'm not trying to take a moral relativism here at all. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get towards the idea. We can say that, call it bad, call it punching down if you want, but you, you, you're, you're just, that's where it'll end. Uh, and you can, you can take it there. That's, that, that's where it tends to stop. But, you know, I feel like we've seen, if we go back, you know, before the 60s, say, in the really old school comedy, we sort of seen, I think that basement sort of change, I don't know, raise or lower or whatever. Um, but the idea that it was, there was a time right? Half a century or so ago, or a little bit more, where it's perfectly okay to make dumb Polak jokes, dumb blonde jokes, and make jokes about racial groups. And even more recently, uh, make jokes about, you know, homosexuals and other folks with non-traditional sexuality. And, and it seems to me that maybe there's some sort of a connection between people who still find those things funny and want to laugh at them. And the whole kind of make America great again, go back to traditional values when it was okay to, to laugh at black people or blondes or Polish people, you know, and as a Polish person, I, you know, I was sort of, I heard more than a few of those growing up. Yeah. So do uh, you have any thoughts no. on that? Yeah. I mean, 100%. So um, there's two, two things that I would say from, from, from the book that, that kind of get us there. I mean, one could be just what you just, the, the path you just took us on, right. That, that, um, you know, we still see these, They'll see this kind of comedy, and it's often sort of covered in a political thing, which I think has become more. I mean, the Trump years sort of uh, made that seem more mainstreamable again, right? What what is making America great again? But perhaps uh, trying to uh, dig up some of that ugliness that you're you're describing. I mean, maybe it's other things too, but that's one of it. Uh, you know, I would say that the instincts in that basement probably a little little bit different because they tend to be very aware of of the kind of uh yeah. uh, rules and you know I, I mean, a little bit different but there's a place where we talk about that directly uh, there's a chapter in which we coin a term uh paleo comedy yeah i wanted to ask you about that huh 
Yeah. So this that takes us right there, right? And that is sort of it's kind of the the MAGA of of comedy in a way. Uh, the examples that we give in the book, I'll actually start with one that might seem a little bit unusual, but I, but I think is illustrative. Uh, we start with Mike Huckabee and his like terrible, terrible. <laughs> They're really bad. Yeah. <laughs> really bad. These like groaner, groaner, dad tweets. Um, and, you know, the left likes to make fun of how unfunny he is. Uh, but, you know, what we argue in the book is that, you know, part of what he's doing is hearkening back to a time of of previous kind of comedy, a one liner kind of. Uh, you know, and the well, jokes often do have like a Hillary Clinton kind of women are dumb element to them also. Right. They sort of harken back to a, well, dad's at the at the, the dining, the dinner table and dad's going to say whatever he says. And we're going to laugh at it. If it's supposed to be funny because, you know, damn it, that's that's how America should work. Right. This this sense of like it doesn't matter if it's actually funny. It sort of reminds us of a time of a certain structure of society. Then we look at sitcoms that really kind of overtly enact that. So Tim Allen. Uh, his his uh, most more more recent it recently ended, but it had a run throughout the Trump years. Uh, a show called Last Man Standing, which is a sort of remarkable, nostalgic kind of throwback, even kind of from maybe to, to Home Improvement, his old show, but even more to like the, the years you're talking about, like even farther back, um, where there's you know this patriarchal guy, and then he's got three daughters, and they're all uh, interested in social justice and these sorts of things, and it creates chaos. But at the end of the day. Right, the comedy and the closure comes from dad getting it all back under control. He's the one who really knows what's going on, really, uh, really can put things back in order. Um, we, we argue that's actually quite a big part of at least one sect, one group, one section of conservative comedy. Uh, we sort of analogize it to the cigar shop at the, uh, at the shopping complex, like the place where the, where the dads kick back and sort of uh, reassert their authority, whether or not it's real. Um, you, you know, this is definitely that that really resonated with me because I tried to watch the, the Tim Allen, that, that Tim Allen show, Last Man Standing. And it just it wasn't that's not funny because I found it necessarily offensive. I just felt it was just kind of weak and lame. And the, 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 the analogy that came to my head is like if you, if you look at, I don't know, the CBS primetime lineup, which has just seemed to me stuff that's made for like old Republican folks, whatever. And as opposed to say HBO, which is edgy and interesting and sophisticated, or at least can be, you know, and, and so maybe there's a, a cultural kind of thing. I guess I'm a, a liberal elite, maybe turning up my nose at sort of this sort of comedy of the people. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some of that. And then, and then it gets all, I think that it gets interesting because it gets kind of mixed up, right? Question becomes, well, is it comedy of the people? Cause people like it. Is a comedy of the people because people recognize that people like you or or me, I think we're in the same boat, are, are more interested in uh, in what's on HBO, and it becomes sort of a tribal identity to reject that. Um, you know, one of the arguments implicit throughout the book is that taste and politics get mixed up in ways that you can't you can't disassociate very easily. Um, you know, there's a class component to that too, right? HBO historically has been more urban and more. You know, it's a pay channel, right? There's there's extra fees involved in, in, in all of that. Uh, but there is this sort of class of comedy that we we argue it doesn't, you know, whether or not people find it funny, it's kind of not what we're not what we we're not what we're analyzing so much. It's sort of what is listed as comedy and sell. Right. And in this case, there's there's definitely a a marketplace for comedy that, you know, we might see as being extremely for one, extremely derivative. It's sort of just coming directly out of uh, older models of comedy podcasts that sound like old AM radio uh, sitcoms that look like they could have been made. Um, and that, that also have sort of messaging in them that are about sort of stable kind of uh, older views of American society where it's largely a guy, a white guy who's in charge and everybody else gets, gets their moments, but it all, it all sort of like ends up in that, that center, right? A sort of recentering project. You know, we call that paleo comedy, uh, supposed to be in reference, of course, to paleoconservatism and the idea of certain kind of tribal uh, uh, definitional notion of what society is. Um, it's there, right? One of the things I want to be clear is to say there are also people in the world of right wing comedy who are completely against that, right? Making our definition of the right kind of potentially, you know, you have to follow, uh, but one that we try to try to connect throughout the book. I wanted to get into one of those other sort of 
uh, houses or areas, right, uh, uh, storefronts, if you will, the libertarian branch of right-wing comedy, which really fascinates me. You mentioned in the book uh, Andrew Heaton, who I definitely wanted to mention. He does a, a great podcast called The Political Orphanage. Uh, Andrew and I have actually been on each other's shows, and I think he's he's really great. Uh, but uh, – I think people should definitely check out Andrew. People also know, I'm sure, Joe Rogan, obviously, uh, huge. Now, he's not, I don't know, he's sort of incidentally political in some weird way, right? Um, I agree. Yeah, uh, importantly, but incidentally. Yeah, uh, just because of the size of the audience. But I also, maybe even earlier, I think of like Trey Parker, Matt Stone. Um, yeah, there's that whole term South Park Republicans that Andrew Sullivan coined to talk about them. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of libertarian sensibilities and how that kind of connects in with right wing comedy. Yeah, and that's the trickiest part, right? Because if you, if you look at like a, at least a traditional traditional Internet quiz or whatever, right? Uh, uh, you know, liber- libertarianism uh, is not going to be right or left uh, somewhere in that other the other access. Right. Um, and that's that's true. And so, yeah, let's let's I mean, I would say uh, if we're talking about the world, the contemporary world we're dealing with. There's really kind of three things going on. Uh, there's the Joe Rogan phenomenon. Then there is, uh, I would argue, sort of two branches that we identify of libertarian comedy. Uh, Andrew being one. And, and uh, I mean, you put your cards on, I'll put mine. I think Andrew's fantastic. He's the character in the book. If I, you said, you know, I don't like stuff in this book. I'd say, well, try Andrew Heaton and yeah, then see absolutely. if you can tolerate any of it. Uh, and if you can, maybe I got a couple other people you might be able to deal with. Uh, so I give him the uh, full recommendation. Um, and uh, There's that branch, and then there's uh, another one, uh, which uh, I associate with Dave Smith and guys like. So let's talk about Rogan for a moment. I think you put it right. Uh, in saying that Rogan, you know, his politics are, are at best confusing, yeah. perhaps incidental. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, the easiest way to spell that story out is to say, uh, during the last presidential cycle, he endorses Bernie Sanders. Yeah. All right, he endorses Bernie <laughs> Sanders. How on earth could we have him in a book about right-wing comedy? Uh, well, after Sanders is no longer viable, he switches his endorsement to Donald Trump, which, you know, I mean, I guess there's a certain populist that maybe you can squint, but if you're talking about practical policy matters, there's not, there's, that's nonsense. I mean, whatever. People can decide that if you could you focus on one tiny itty bitty thing, but come on. Right? He says he's interested in, in, uh, in Sanders because Sanders' commitment to uh, universal health care, which is very sympathetic to this idea. Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, Trump's been president for four years, has showed no interest whatsoever. In universe, like it does not make any sense to switch from one to the other. So what's going on? Uh, you could just say, ah, oh, he's like this guys on the on on he's doing podcast stone. Who knows? But I think <laughs> yeah. a better way to look at it is to say, look, I mean, look at his demographics. And podcast demos are tough, but some, a sometimes you can just look at the advertisers, and b there are actually because Rogan's so big, there is some data out there. He is overwhelmingly uh, his his biggest demographic are young people with the subsections in there being men. The subsections of men being sort of people who are not uh, uh, terribly uh, sort of uh, they don't like to align themselves with specific nameable political ideologies. And if you look at that, and then you look at his advertisers, which are like boxes of raw meat and cubic <laughs> hair shapers, yeah, right. You sort of put that all together, and you say, all right. I mean, the move from Sanders to Trump is just going down the list of preferences within that those demographic spaces. It really, it's it's just. You know, he wouldn't put it that way. He'd say, like, sort of what's interesting or something, or like what people want to hear about or what I'm interested in. But it maps on exactly with sort of preferences for people in his, uh, you know, elk meat, elk meat uh, buying demo. Um, so, you know, what do we say in the books? We say, well, Joe Rogan does not have politics. He has demographics. Yeah, <laughs> they they might be intuitive. Right. I mean, that doesn't mean he's uh, he's sitting there doing the the uh, beautiful mind, uh, you know, math equation on on the window. Right. It could just be that he intuits in this direction. It doesn't really matter. He has this appeal to a demographic, either naturally or intentionally, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, and as such, he's going to bring in voices from different spaces. And more of those voices are going to be iconoclastic people who associate with the libertarian world and particularly sort of the uh, radical taboo libertarian. You know, I, I got to say that phrase, the phrase that you mentioned, he's got maybe an intuitive appeal to a certain demographic that that, that flashed in my mind. That reminded me of another uh, very important and very political figure, Donald Trump right there. You yeah, know? No, exactly. No, that's a me too. As I said, I was like, yeah, that kind of like, you know, is Trump playing, you know, eight dimensional chess or is he just wired in a way that clicks 
in certain ways. And that, you know, look, it's not, it doesn't seem coincidental that they emerge in the same moment, both in terms of uh, media and politics, right? Um, so, uh, you know, he does bring on, Rogan will bring on a few characters on the left, uh, which you can take or leave, uh, Cornell West types or uh, like Michael Pollan or these people. Uh, but he more often is bringing uh, on people like either kind of clear right-wing ideologues like Milo, Yiannopoulos kind of characters, Alex Jones. Um, or he's bringing on uh, a, a number of people who are comedians in the sort of libertarian world, uh, but not Andrew Heaton. <laughs> Andrew Heaton would not do well. Andrew is far too balanced, nuanced, and sort of clear in his thoughts, I think. Uh, he would not be a great Rogan guest. Uh, who, who are good Rogan guests are characters from uh, particularly this uh, podcast and world. The podcast is called The Legion of Skanks. The uh, world is called The Gas Digital Network. Uh, and they include a bunch of people, of comedians of various skills, abilities, and pers uh, uh, persuasions. Uh, one of the people in this world is a guy by the name of Dave Smith, who is a, a really informed libertarian. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know enough Rothbart and uh, <laughs> yeah. to totally follow, uh -huh. but he's like very seriously giving arguments about why drunk driving laws are immoral and, you know, these sorts of very intense libertarian views. Uh, he's a comedian who's on there. I've heard you know, that he might have political ambitions in the libertarian world. You know, he's a comedian, uh, but straight sort of libertarian uh, politics. And then associated with him are more a bunch of comedians who take the free speech part of this as the sort of heart of libertarian comedy. Uh, meaning, you know, libertarians, libertarianism says that saying things is never, never wrong, really. I mean, there'll be a few very few examples, but using a slur is not is not uh, uh, so at least not something that the government or that the bodies of uh, official power should have anything to do with. And so because you can say the N word over and over again, then I can make comedy that says the N word over and over and over again. And it's political. It's making a political libertarian point. Uh, because you're not really supposed to laugh about women being punched, right? Because of the, the awful consequences of that socially. Uh, but as libertarianism says, well, if you're not doing the punching and you can laugh at anything you want, then by doing bits in which they watch women get punched and laugh about it and make jokes about it, they're not just doing the punching down, right? They're also advocating a libertarian political perspective, which is you can't make me not laugh at what I want to, not say what I want to. That, and they combine it with sort of a drug thing too, right? They're always in various drug use while they do this. And so it has the sheen of a libertarian politics. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's messages in there I'm not getting. But when I engage in this here, what I hear is people who, uh, you know, because they can say this word, they're going to make jokes constantly about saying this word and pretend it is something other than just mocking, mocking black people, mocking women, Jews in ovens, these kinds of things. Um, so that's one brand of, 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 uh, libertarian comedy, uh, that, you know, it's funny and I've got a co-writer, we had to decide, you know, who was going to, we, 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 we all listened to all of it. We had to focus on it. I did better with the, uh, with the daily show than some of the, uh, women getting punched stuff personally. Very hard. Anyway, that's where libertarian comedy, it's not just that, but it includes a lot of that. Then hard period, like complete stop. There's another one, uh, which is where I put Andrew Heaton. Um, who's got nothing to do with that previous one, except that he's like really against government regulations in various areas. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, like, but, but that's, that's, that's where it begins and ends, right? What kind of comedy does he do? I mean, one, uh, he is just much more open to hearing, uh, other perspectives and taking them seriously. Uh, but two, he crafts, and this is sort of just me uh, interpreting a, a, somebody, a comedian that I, I enjoy. Uh, I see his libertarianism coming through a sort of absurdist lens where, He's crafting jokes that aren't often they're not directly political at all, but they have sort of this underlying message. I'll, I'll give my favorite example or one of them, uh, you know, so he's got a show. He's got guests on. And he does sketches, bits. Uh, he does fake ads. So uh, you know, he, yeah. he makes <laughs> they're, they're fantastic. And, and my favorite and like, you know, he thinks I'm, I'm, I'm overreading him, but that's my job. I'm a professor. Uh, so he's got this bit about how you should really start buying translucent bagels. You need to buy translucent bagels. Because uh, you don't know if the bagel provider is putting screws into your bagels. And you don't want to spend all your time with the magnet doctor getting those screws removed. So invest in translucent bagels. Right? So it's a funny concept. But I see it as coming very much from his libertarian sensibility. Right? A lot of what Andrew puts when he's doing political commentary, uh, he looks at the ways in which government offers uh, solutions without problems. 
for solutions that can't possibly fix problems. Uh, and I may agree or disagree with those in the specifics, but the sort of mindset is that his mind is always on the lookout for people who are trying to fix something by taking an action when that action can't help, right? The, 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 there's no screws in the bagels. We don't need to make translucent ones, but what if there were? Maybe we should create a program. That's how I read him. That's a sort of, I know it's abstract, uh, but I see that as libertarian comedy also. And that's where like that absurdity and playfulness really, to me, works. You know, you know we've gotten to this point and it's hard to believe without really more than a, a passing mention of who the, the guy who might be the an 800 pound gorilla, at least at this point of right wing comedy. That's Greg Gutfeld. And could you I think we should get into him because he's bigger than I think a lot of people, certainly bigger than I appreciated. So could you he's talk a little bit about important. him? Yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. He is. Uh, so he is the host of. um goes back and forth, but what is often on many nights, the highest rated late night comedy show. Uh, it's on Fox called Gutfeld exclamation point. Um, and it often, it, it, it plays with Colbert and it beats almost everybody else. So it beats the daily show. It beats uh, Kimmel. Well, and it depends on that, you know, don't, don't fact check me on each day, but he's, he definitely has had days where he's on, he's number one and he's always toward. Anybody who doesn't like him will say, well, of course, because the other audience, the other guys are divvying up the audience of, of, uh, of liberals, whereas he's got the whole conservative. Yeah, OK, fine. But also he's on cable there on, t on broadcast. There's a bunch of factors. The fact is he's popular. And that a lot of people watch him, um, you know, the best, the most. I don't think that's but a real force in that world. Um, you know, so where does he come from? Uh, he's he's this uh, New York kind of marketing guerrilla marketing guy. He was involved in the men's magazines of the early 2000s, the Maxims, kind of. Oh, God, I remember those, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were a real thing, yeah. If you're a little younger than you or I, then, then yeah. It's a, fun, it's a fun little uh, moment in history. Um, you know, very, uh, you know, young men oriented. It's supposed to be funny and like, but very, you know, whatever. There's the latent misogyny, if you're looking for that, it's pretty easy to find them, uh, but playful and popular. Uh, so it comes from that world. He gets involved uh, with with TV, ends up getting the show uh, in, in the aughts uh, called Red Eye on Fox News. And it's it's called Red Eye because it's an overnight show. Um, you know, it's airing from two to six, whatever, like really like, but very, <laughs> yeah, I, whenever I would see it, it would be like two thirty three in the morning. The hours might have changed a little bit here and there. Uh, and it was a panel talk show, but also sort of this anachronist, uh, anarchistic. Uh, this, this world of anarchy, Fox News Universe in the middle of the night, uh, it would often be, oh, like uh, like uh, these bits that would kind of mock cable news. So like instead of having five or six talking heads at once, he'd bring on like 19 talking <laughs> heads at once and have them all talk at the same time. Um, you know, he would mock the Fox, you know, way in which Fox presented women even. He would sort of overemphasize the leggy Fox view in order to, to you know, make fun of it. Uh, he would bring on characters who would become famous in our inner book later, guys like Gavin McGinnis, who's the Proud Boys guy, or Steven Crowder, the Change of Mind guy. These various comedians would come on through it. Uh, and it did really well, really well in this time slot that is yeah. nothing time <laughs> slot, right? Yeah. Um, but it shows there's somebody willing to turn on Fox News who's willing to watch this kind of stuff. Um, this is after the failure of that show I mentioned before, the Half Hour News Hour. So, like, Fox is maybe a little gun-shy on comedy-comedy, but they develop it. It's like the minor leagues, right? They're really, really developing the, uh, uh, the, 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 this comedy sort of uh, position in the minor leagues. Uh, eventually, he and, uh, and Jesse Waters, who's still on there, kind of bubble up as comedic voices on the, the you know, waking hours. Uh, Fox World, Waters goes on, uh, starts working with Bill O'Reilly, younger, hipper, explaining the, explain the jokes, the old man O'Reilly <laughs> kind of guy. And Gutfeld gets his own show uh, where he's doing a combination politics and, you know, a little bit sort of sketch comedy stuff. That goes really well. So they bump him up last year to Gutfeld this nightly, every night, go up against the big guy's show. You watch the show. Uh, you might say that's not funny, depending on your politics. Uh, but in terms of what he's doing, it's more or less, uh, it's like a cheaper version. Of the budgeting is lower. But it's it's a lot. It's Colbert. It's, he goes on, he does a monologue, got a panelists as opposed to guests because he can't get movie stars uh but he has panelists and talks to them about the events of the day uh really cheaply produced sketches that are you know generally political uh sometimes just silly uh he's kind of surprisingly 
complicated and ironic when it comes to certain right-wing issues. He does these bits where he kind of breaks down Trump's speeches in a way that kind of shows how insane they are, but also is sort of admiring and quite interesting to watch. It's not like it's not as pure sort of like messaging as you might think if you watch a lot of I don't know, Hannity or Laura Ingram or something. Um, and he gets lots of people. You know, he's got a big Twitter presence. He's got people watching on broadcast. He's all over the place. Uh, and uh, most of the media world still will not accept him. One of my, uh, and I don't accept like accept uh, like like say he's good. They like, won't acknowledge what he's doing. My favorite example is uh, in the first article where he was beating Colbert in a uh, in Variety, which is like the trade paper of record for the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, it, it said it gave the ratings, and then it said in first uh, was was Greg Gutfeld with his comedy oriented show. <laughs> I think yeah. he's like a hyphen and it's just like well I, and i'm reading it i'm like yeah i don't think it's that great out but it's it's a comedy show it's not just oriented he's doing a comedy show uh but there's this resistance right to sort of acknowledging it um you know his politics are they probably kind of are libertarian ish on paper but really trumpy also which i think tensions there um he, he's really a uh He's really a, he's a chaos muppet, right? Like he he's he's somebody who wants to burn things down, but you know not everything, uh, not his not his huge audience and salary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he's he 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 sort of serves as a centering point for the world of right wing comedy now. Thing to point to to say there's reason to get into this business if you're on the right and you're and you're doing comedy. Um, and he also serves as a launching pad, like almost everybody that we talk about in the book in these different spaces except for the real real extremists will show up or have shown up in some greg gutfeld space that's part of what we talk about the book is the way these these uh, different storefronts even though they have very different ideologies they nonetheless sort of cross promote each other but gutfeld will have you know i already mentioned he had gavin guinness on he's Stephen crowder i'll have michael malice on who's a sort of right-wing troll guy and have him go on and rate trump's trolling like it um, you know, he will bring in people from across it, either from across the world of right wing comedy, either actually onto the show or maybe his social media presence. Um, and you know, it's, this show's a little more complicated than you might think. Uh, but most people don't think about it at all. It sort of doesn't exist uh, in sort of the broad, broad understanding is today. Yeah, I, I kind of going back just a little bit to comedy on the left. I had this. I don't know if this. Is, Exactly, is developed as a theory, but it seems to me that it's definitely the case that there are plenty of people, prominent people on the left, who are, are at least at times ridiculous and could use some deflating. And it's easy to poke fun at. And that, but I'm wondering if you think that number one, there's a reluctance of non-right comedy figures to do that, and if there is. Do you think it might have anything to do with the fact that you're saying, well, you know, sure, this person might be ridiculous, but they're doing important work. And if we mock them, then that's going to get in the way of the larger kind of political agenda. What do you think about that? Now, no, I mean, that, that, that's interesting, right? Because I, I see I see exactly what you're saying. And then I also actually see sort of an inverse in a way. So let me let me try to think through it. Um, you know, so when I think of. Right, yeah, like like the, the 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 vaunted voices on the left who are, um, you know, I'll give an example. Maybe this is what you're thinking of, but, but to me, you know, like Stephen Colbert's penchant for sort of like getting extremely emotional uh, and even like crying around things like January 6th, which on the one hand, I mean, I'm not um, judge that as a reaction, but you're a comedian, don't you have other tools <laughs> to get across? this right like i'm not saying i'm not saying don't go at it with fire i'm saying that no, that's not fire like you're a comedian like you should be making us uh you should be using comedy to enlighten these emotions like that kind of thing which i do agree if that's what, if that's the kind of thing you might be thinking of uh people are very hesitant to, to critique or criticize uh, and there's also sort of a cancel thing that's not Colbert, but but other people who uh you know sort of are, are monitoring word usage and whatnot i do think that there is a Sort of sense of like we have to get culture right like the uh you know the, the trump years shows that that in, you know politics could be out of the left's grasp the 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 house of representatives is stacked the electoral college is is stacked against the the left we have to do culture right we have to get it exactly right and that's how we'll win i, I do think that there is a piece of that um i i think that 
part and parcel of that uh, is that these old powerful or powerful seeming, they're shown to be less and less powerful, uh, institutions in comedy are all on the left and everybody wants to be on them. So uh, the right doesn't have this so much. Maybe Gutfeld like becomes this. I don't know. Uh, but like, you know, why you can't, if you, if you want to remain, you're a sort of a left center, left comedian. You want to get on SNL. You want to get on Colbert. You want to be part of these powerful comedy institutions, or at least what looks like, you know, from, from the old days, powerful comedy institutions. So you don't burn those bridges. Whereas the right doesn't have that issue so much. They can burn any bridge they want, kind of, in that they, they there's no, there's no, there's no giant power, right? There's no, there's no place you're really trying to get to the top of. So I think those go together in a way in that, so one, there's a political program Colbert is after, uh, and two, you want to get on Colbert. So like, how hard are you going to take him? How hard are you going to go at him? And whoever he says is good, you're going to say is good. And you get sort of a group thing going. I will say that on the edge of the left, they will, uh, they will go after the libs. So like a Chapo trap house world, uh, which is doing political comedy and, uh, they will, um, but I suppose in a way that seems sort of non-integrated. The interesting thing about that Republican right-wing, it's not just Republican, but sort of right-wing uh, world is that they can be very, they can have virtually nothing in common. They, they love to get together and laugh at the lived. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the, the, the unity on the left is a little more complicated. It's more about sort of, I would say, preserving a certain kind of uh, place. Uh, and then maybe sort of like an outside group of rabble rousers trying to go at them. And so it's, it's not, it's not a parallel. It's not, it's not a symmetrical system. Yeah. I, I'd like to close with sort of a bigger kind of pulling back and the bigger question, I guess, in a way that to me, that the concern I have about right wing comedy, especially certain, certain of those storefronts is that the, the quickest way, I think in some ways to normalize something is to be able to laugh at it. And so even if I am not, yeah, so even if I'm not a listener, you know, if I don't listen to these podcasts or watch their shows, that that's why the rise of certain types of right-wing comedy really concerns me. And I wanted to get your take just in general, because the majority of the audience here is left to center, though we do have something of a mix. But what do you see as kind of these larger implications? I guess both, you know, both positive and negative of the rise of, of Gutfeld and, and right wing comedy in the last, well, I guess 20 years or 15, 20 years or so. Yeah. I mean, to your first point, I mean, absolutely. That is, um, you know, there's sort of two major things you look at from the left side of things. Again, it's where, where this book resides, where I, I and my co-author reside is on the left side of these. Things. Uh, there is the, these sort of, big sort of moral like normalizing questions that you talk about and then there's like maybe a political strategy um on the far end of that moral side you're 100 right that comedy and particularly irony uh is used to normalize or sort of like uh you know turn the heat up really slowly on something in order to make it seem acceptable or thinkable uh, the worst example of this is i mean and you know you don't need a you don't need an analyst you can listen don't <laughs> but if you listen to the daily show up They'll tell you that, like, you know, yeah, like all these Gen Xers, like they think Hitler's this terrible guy, but like we can make him funny for people who are a little bit younger. Right. We can we can we can show how, like, you know, this whole thing is like a little bit silly. And what do you really know? And I'll make a joke about it. You make a joke here. You make a joke there. Uh, and, uh, you know, where's the truth? Where's the joke? And what's the difference anyway? It happened, uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago to a bunch of people who you don't like anyway. Um, that is overtly. like They'll tell you tell you that's their strategy um you know how successful is it i don't think to create a movement of millions of of nazis but do i think uh let's say uh general holocaust understanding and awareness is in a good place i would say no and uh anything that's sort of pushing in that direction is bad um then there's people who are doing it a little less in the shadows right where uh you know like a stephen crowder does these bits where he like horrible horrible bits where he'll go to like uh uh, a work site to pick up people looking for day labor uh, uh sort of like his mind prank them by like pretending to give them a job and then say he's going to call immigration kind of things uh which you know for you know, re really regardless of your position on immigration seems like just horrible cool. human behavior yeah. right uh but phrased as comedy right and it's supposed to be because it's like shot kind of like a jackass kind of prank show um and that sort of normalization of dehumanization of treating people as props 
through comedy is incredibly powerful. And Steven Crowder is not the Daily Show. He's on Facebook. I mean, he's he's got millions of viewers on Facebook. So, I mean, those are things to, uh, yeah, to be worried about. I mean, what to do about them is a secondary, not secondary, but it's a hard question there. And uh, some like regulation response, some like counter response. We can, no, we'll do another show. Um, uh, so that those that is to completely validate what you said and say I agree. Huge problem uh, and a reason to understand this is going on, so that when you see people or things or ideas, people in your world, whatever, that tend towards it, to understand it's not a it's not a, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. Um, it has serious impact. Uh, then there is, I think, also a sort of uh, if you're a democratic strategist uh, perspective, and that one thing that we show throughout the book is good at least like uh, early stage symbolic coalition building on the right where you they 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 use comedy to take uh you know conservative christians who are into the babylon b and introduce them to you know uh uh, anarchist uh uh, capitalist types who uh really have very little in common except they all they all hate joe biden right and they're all going to make jokes about joe biden and you know that that's that's a coalition like again i'm not a political scientist so i'm not giving you numbers but i'm saying this kind of cross blending, this cross promotion, uh, looks like coalitions to me. Um, it also helps people on the right find their place on the right. Say that, that you know, you you know, you might be a, a conservative Christian, I might be a radical anarchist, but you know, we can both enter into the comedy world, find our places, and oh, your guy talks to my guy on a funny podcast. Like, I guess we're not so different. We're not like those libs. And the sort of outcome for that on the left would be at the very least to the extent to which uh uh you uh you you don't want uh, that we would argue that looking censorious looking over serious looking like there's no place for playfulness in discourse uh i'm not saying we're we're there necessarily on the left there are tendencies i think towards those ideas and that they're really a problem uh you know sort of moral ethical things aside they're a problem in terms of strategy their problem in terms of creating a world on the right, which looks playful and looks uh, inviting to a wide range of pe- potential people, particularly young people who have not made their political choices yet. Uh, and that if we're thinking sort of culturally on the left, we want to think in terms of, well, you know, didn't we dominate the world of comedy and shouldn't we? Uh, and, you know, are there things that can be done without sacrificing our size at advantage? We used to have? Final question for you. We've mentioned some, uh, you mentioned a bunch of names throughout the podcast, but for, for listeners who are interested in maybe dipping their toes into the world of right-wing comedy and seeing if they think it's funny or not, or just if they're just curious, yeah, we already both I very strongly agree on on uh, Andrew Heaton, certainly, but who else would you recommend is maybe, I don't know, say gateway drugs exactly, but the storefronts yeah. that might be most congenial at least to kind of start with people are interested in that kind of thing yeah and it depends what you're going for right if you're if you're looking for something that's that's creative and clever and comes from at least a non like non-liberal non-progressive uh, perspective that's andrew heaton um i don't think he'd like to be called right but he worked at fox news he worked oh yeah, yeah. Fox <laughs> business, i guess worked at fox business he worked for uh, glenn beck I and mean, we can only i could say you know we, we, I love them, but you know, you know, the stripe is a stripe, uh, at least when it comes to positioning. Um, a character who I think is really instructive uh, and easy to find because he's online is Ryan Long. So Ryan Long does uh, mostly, I mean, he has like stand-up specials uh, as well, and I'm, I'm, I'm not endorsing him, uh, but I'm saying he's interesting. Um, and um, uh, so he does a lot of, uh, a lot of like critique of what he calls, and I know people are a controversial word to use, right? What he will call like critiques of woke society. Um, and, you know, you can find them offensive or you could maybe see he's got certain things to say that are worth listening to. Uh, he's a provocateur. He's got a stand-up special called Nanette 2, sort of making fun of Hannah Gadsby's sensation uh, end up Nanette. You might find that offensive or ends, but uh, he is indicative, I think, of that space that isn't isn't directly sort of pure right wing, but is that invitation to think in terms that are uh, being used by the right. Uh, and that, frankly, some of the jokes are really good. Um, if you want a Twitter handle to follow and you're willing to get very online, uh, a character by the name of Michael Malice, not his real name, it's a page uh, known to Bloom. Um, he is a Twitter troll. Uh, 
And, you know, he, he's, he's like, whenever I keep referring to our narco, uh, narco, uh, 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 capitalist or whatever, that's, that's him. Um, you know, the jokes are very online, but they are very clever and crafted. He also will flirt with people on that far, far right in ways that if you look at the book, you can see why I've got my reservations about, but, uh, skill is skill when it comes to trolling online, at least. And then I would say Gutfeld. And again, uh, you know, based on my understanding of your audience, is very likely the response is going to be, that's not funny. Um, if you want specific bits, I can, I can point you. I actually published an article on Slate. Uh, I didn't, me and my co-author did, uh, recently that kind of talked through some of the bits he does. We say are most effective, whether or not they're funny. Um, but I think you should know Gutfeld. I think you know who he is. Um, you know, I guess the only thing I would say in his defense uh, is that make sure if you're, judging it that you've watched some other recent late night shows also late night shows are very hard to produce uh you got to make a whole set of jokes every day uh on the topicality that said i I don't think he's the world's most skilled comedian political positions that i'm complete disagreement to but i think if you want to understand the world of american politics now that's a something you have to understand well, I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you uh matt i really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the show no, thanks for having me. Uh, books available. Anybody wants to chat, talk, you can find me on Twitter, um, at Media Studied. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. And we will have links to all of this stuff in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.